I could see my feet, but I couldn't feel them. I couldn't move them. I was still confused. And I remember his face in come up close to mine. And I blinked and I said, tell me this is a dream. And he said, no, this is real. And I said, then pray. Welcome to Stories of Hope in Hard Times, the show that explores how people endure and even thrive in difficult times, all with God's help. I'm your host, Tamara K. Anderson. Join me on a journey to find inspiring stories of hope and wisdom learned in life's hardest moments. My guest today was raised in Cokeville, Wyoming, where she attended high school and was always a physically active young woman who loved to sing and dance. In fact, she planned on receiving her Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in musical dance theater. That all changed one day in 1996, where at the age of 23, she was in a car accident, which left her paralyzed from the neck down one week before her wedding. Although doctors said she would never walk again with unwavering faith, determination, a positive attitude, and a miracle or two, she was able to walk just three months later. She is married to her husband, Cole, and they have been married for 23 years, have four children, including a set of twins. She's a professional speaker, singer, entertainer, full-time wife and mother, and almost an author. She loves her faith, family, friends, food, and fun. I'm pleased to present Abby Stevens. Abby, are you ready to share your story of hope? Absolutely. Wonderful. Thanks for being on the podcast today. I have one question I have got to know the answer to, and that is how in the world do you, were you able to juggle a set of twins when you have the use of only really one hand? (laughs) That is the question of, I would say of the day, but of all the days. (laughs) Um, yeah, that was tricky. And that just, you know, that came along with all the other things that I had to learn how to do. Um, you know, having one baby at a time was scary enough. And then those two came along and that was just something else, but um, lots of help. That's how lots of people who are willing to serve and love and care and, and, and help. So, you know, and then just, just, figuring things out and we all have to do that right like things happen and we have to we have to be flexible and modify and and just figure it out as we go so oh my goodness I I was in a car accident um, when I had two young children and broke one of my collarbones and had to wear my arm in a sling for months Mm -hmm. and months and months and I could not change my wiggly boys diapers one-handed it was like (laughs) I had to help to change diapers. I'm like, oh my word. So I'm trying to visualize you with two kids and trying to change up. My brain can't even wrap itself around that. (laughs) I know. And I have lots of moms 
say, uh, and moms with twins, like, I couldn't do it with two arms. How did you do that? But <laughs> even, I basically use my non-functional hand as like a paperweight and <laughs> plop it on there to hold the diaper down while I do it up. And I mean, yeah, it's just, again, like one of those things that you just, um, you just figure out. So funny story. I'll tell you a funny story about the changing diapers thing. When I was pregnant with my first uh, for my shower, I thought it would be funny to play a game where we passed a doll around and timed people to see how long it would take them to change the doll's diaper with one hand, oh. right? <laughs> so, so we were passing this doll around, you know, and most people are, I mean, it's a struggle. Well, my grandma, she got the doll and she puts that thing between her knees and squishes it to hold it still. <laughs> and it's changing the diaper with the baby. I'm like, Grandma, the problem is you can't kill the baby. You can't <laughs> the baby still has to be alive when the diaper is changed. So everybody's just laughing. But yeah, so that was oh. kind of something that we did to make it fun, right? Like, yeah. it's kind of not ideal. And it wasn't what I had planned to change diapers with one hand so you know my one of my biggest things is just to make things funny and that's how I one of my tools for coping. that's one of your tools but that's a great tool to use I, I I married a man who has a fantastic sense of humor I've mm -hmm. always tended to, to be more serious in nature and he has been just perfect for me. He brings out the humor and we've, we've sure needed to laugh about a lot of things, just like you have with your life, right? So. Right, right. You have to laugh, right? You have to laugh or you'll cry. And that's one of my favorite co quotes uh, by Marjorie Hinckley. Mm -hmm. She said, life is hard and you either have to laugh or you cry. She said, I prefer to, prefer to laugh because crying gives me a headache, right? So, <laughs> I love that. Like, there's just moments where you really do want to just break down and cry. And if you can, and it's okay to cry. It's okay to yeah. cry. That's human emotion. And we need that to be healthy, but definitely don't want to just like park there. And so to be able to twist something, make it funny and have a good laugh, you know, I figure that's a lot more healthy and and it helps you get over it faster. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I think that's good because I think that it's not just the twisting it to make it funny, but it's also being able to look at a situation from a different point of view, exactly. you know, and, and that is a skill that really helps uh, put any traumatic situation into perspective. So exactly. that's yeah, beautiful. exactly. And, you know, and I don't expect people to, you know, I think sometimes people might think, well, how do you laugh when you've just lost a loved one or, you know, definitely when, when they gave me our, my prognosis, we weren't laughing about that. No. Right. In the moment, in the moment of trauma or tragedy or heartache or those kinds of things, of course, you're not going to laugh, but as you continue with on and as you're coping and as you're um, trying to still function in your life through hard times, then you can find that humor element and yeah. it definitely makes a difference. So, yeah. Wow. So let, let's go to a pivotal moment in your life. And it was in your young life. Um, 
I mentioned in the introduction that you were raised in Cokeville, Wyoming, a very, very small town that had a very, very traumatic event happen when you were in seventh grade. Would you mind telling me a little bit about that and why that was such a pivotal experience for you at a young age? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Cokeville, Wyoming, uh, some people have heard of it, some haven't. Uh, there's a movie that if you'd like the whole story, because we're not going to tell that whole story today, it's not really mine to tell. I just was uh, there, uh, is the Cokeville Miracle. And I encourage anybody that wants to watch that to find it on, it's on multiple streaming uh, platforms. Um, in 1986, a man and his wife came and held our elementary school hostage with a bomb. And there's a lot of backstory to that, but, um, but you know, the, in, a, in a nutshell, he came and held our elementary school. My brother was in fourth grade in that school. Um, and in Cokeville, the teeny tiny school, it is the only elementary school. And there's another building that is the junior high and high school. And um, so, you know, our entire town was involved in this. And it was obviously very scary and uh, traumatic and tragic. And the, the reason it's called the Cokeville Miracle is because miraculously, um, after hours of waiting and wondering and being very afraid um, and yet having faith and saying lots of prayers, um, the bomb was accidentally detonated and uh, all of those children and teachers, there were about 100, I, I want to say about 155-ish people held in one classroom. and of all those people, no one was killed except for the man and his wife who, uh, she was too close, she was close to the bomb. She's the one that accidentally detonated it. And he um, took his own life. So uh -huh. that is the very, very uh, nutshell version, but, but it was a miracle. Mm -hmm. And there's no other way to explain it because in the investigation of it and everything, the bomb was made to level the entire wing of the building. Mm -hmm. um, in the investigation, they found that only 15% of the bomb went off without wow. anything. So, and many other, oh, there are so many stories of divine intervention and, and angels and so many things. Um, that, like I said, that's a podcast in itself, <laughs> yeah. right? But um, I, as a sibling of someone in the school, my little brother was in fourth grade and I had seven other little cousins in there and everybody knows everyone there. And so everyone's friends and we know everyone and everybody was involved. And so it was definitely just a life-changing testimony, faith-building experience that I personally was affected in that I saw a miracle and it was undeniable and I prayed and it was answered mm. and so that is why it was very pivotal to me not knowing 
that it would be foundational in the strength of my testimony that would get me through more hard times. Mm. So, wow. That is that it's amazing how these hard situations that that we feel we have no control over can uh, point us to God. Well, I think there's a choice, right? You can either be angry by it um, right. and and kind of lash out at God. God, why did you let this happen? Yep. Um, um, or you can turn to God and and see the miracle in it. And be thankful that it's that hard experience strengthened your faith and the faith of those present. Right. And, and can even, I think, shake people's faith to deny that there's a God. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a loving God, why would he allow these things to happen, right? Mm-hmm. That is, that's an option. That's yes, a it is. thing that happens. And, you know, that's obviously part of our choice you know, freedom to choose and make those choices. And, and yes, things can be very faith shaking and, um, you know, but to me, it was faith strengthening and, mm. you know, and, and, you know, who's to say had it happened the way it was, you know, the bomb had all gone off and killed all those children that could have been very detrimental to a lot of people's faith. I'm sure, you know, mm-hmm. so, so yeah. yeah. So sometimes God allows miracles and then sometimes you're in a car accident and you're paralyzed. <laughs> right? Oh my goodness. So so you grew up, you loved uh music and dancing and that was your love and that was your life. It's what you wanted to do graduating in college. That's fantastic. Take me to the day everything changed in 1996. So um, I had met, I had gone to college for two and a half years, at which point I decided to serve as a missionary for my church mm-hmm. and um, had gone to Florida to serve as a missionary. And that is actually where I met my husband. He was also a missionary, but that's not where we started dating, obviously. <laughs> where we met. And upon returning, we did did start dating and and we had decided to be married on June 28th of 96. And on June 21st, exactly one week before, is when that all changed. Now, while we were dating, and even before I dated him, and I started getting what I guess some people would call a premonition or personal revelation or, a you know, just a feeling, whatever people want to call that. And I just had this thought and it was something is going to happen to me before I get married. Hmm. I mean, that's kind of broad and what, like, okay. And what am I supposed to do with that information? Right. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Something good, something bad. What, what does that mean? And so I would think about it a lot and it would come and go. And, and so when I started dating, if I was ever to get a little more serious with anyone, I'd let them know that. And, but when I started dating my husband and it was serious and I knew that this was the man I wanted to marry, I did share with that, that with him. And I said, I don't know what that means. I just know that it's a warning. I feel it's a warning to be careful, to obey all the laws, to not take any risks. So we decided 
we'd always wear our seat belts and we'd <clears throat> just be careful. So we did. And on June 21st, uh, we were actually headed to Cokeville, where my cousin was having her wedding reception. And she had been married in Salt Lake that day in our Salt Lake Temple. And we'd been to that uh, ceremony there. And then all of my family and loved ones who could be there were also then traveling back to Cokeville to this wedding reception. So we were headed on our way. And um, I was extra tired that day. I decided to recline my seat all the way back. We were in a little four-door geoprism. Um, I don't remember what year it was made, but it was when the seat belts, I don't know if you've ever been in a car that has these, but the when you shut the door, the, the shoulder harness slides up into place. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I remember those. Yeah. Now, they don't make those anymore for that reason, because it makes you feel like you have your seatbelt on, but you have to reach down and manually click your lap belt across your lap. Oh. And so it's kind of a false sense of security, right? Like I've got my seatbelt on, it slides up, holds your, you know, across your chest. Um, but I was reclined. I was completely reclined in my seat. Okay. Two things. Always wear your seatbelts and never recline in your seat when the car is moving. <laughs> Just common sense that I didn't even think about at that moment. Okay. So we get on our way and for whatever reason, we just didn't do up those lap belts. I mean, it's just one of those human moments, right? Even though we'd made that commitment, we're always going to wear our seatbelts and we did all every time that day we didn't. And I, I really, I think about that a lot. Like, were we not supposed to, I, it was, th this is the thing that was going to happen. Right. And it's going to mm -hmm. happen either way. So we didn't do them up. We get on our way. Um, the trip is about just over two hours from from where we live to Cokeville, and and about halfway we usually stop in this little town, and get a drink, and you know take a little break. But we didn't. I was asleep. Cole chose to just keep driving, which was fine. We were going to be late for the reception. Just kept on our way, and you know he he looked down for a moment and realized he's like maybe I should just reach over and do up that that lap belt for. Her. And he eh, brushed it off. So another lesson learned. Don't brush off the little feelings. Now, again, something was going to happen to me. So if it didn't happen this time, had he listened, had he done that, we don't know what the outcome would have been. Mm. I could have been hurt worse, differently, who knows. But it would have happened eventually. That's all I know. So we went on our way. And about 15 or 20 minutes later, the road, it's a little tiny highway in the middle of nowhere in northern Utah. Uh, sagebrush for miles. I mean, it is just nothingness. And he looked down at me again, just glimpsed down at me for just a moment. And as he did, the road was curving to our left. And because he looked down and didn't turn, the car went off the road just a little onto the gravel shoulder. And going 65, which was the speed limit then, woke me up, right? The, the sound of driving on gravel all of a mm. sudden was loud. And I woke up and I sat up in my seat and he had overcorrected into the oncoming lane. Oh. And now, gratefully, this is not a heavily traveled road. It wasn't, there wasn't a ton of traffic. But as he did, and I woke up out of this dead sleep, and you know when you do that and you're confused and like, what's going on? And, mm -hmm. and I see a car coming, 
And I remember just grabbing his arm and I yelled, watch out in, in just that state of fear mm-hmm. and confusion, right? And, and that caused him again to overcorrect off to the right. We went off the side of the road into, there was a, just a little ditch and it flipped our car and we rolled one time and I don't remember any of that, but we rolled one time, landed on the wheels. And as I was trying to make sense of what happened, I felt like maybe I was still asleep and was having a really bad dream and was trying to wake myself up and I couldn't breathe very well. And I was afraid, but not aware. And I could hear Cole calling my name. And I was trying to answer him, but I couldn't. And I was trying to open my eyes. And I finally opened my eyes enough that I could blink and see my feet in the seat where I used to be sitting. And my body was between those bucket seats and my head was in the back seat behind the driver's side. Wow. And I could hear him calling my name. I'm trying to answer. He also then, he he miraculously was still in his seat and looked over to where I was supposed to be sitting couldn't see me through the dirt and when it settled he saw my feet as well got out of the car came back opened the back door and just kneeled down by my head by me I could see my feet but I couldn't feel them I couldn't move them I was still confused and I remember his face in come up close to mine and I blinked and I said tell me this is a dream and he said no this is real and I said then pray because I knew prayers were answered my whole life not always in the way we want our prayers answered but I'd seen miracles and I absolutely with 100% surety knew that I would be okay because if we prayed, I would be okay. Hmm. So in 1996, the problem was cell phones. Yeah. <laughs> they had right. the ginormous ones back the then bricks. that cost, yes, yes. the bricks. <laughs> so we didn't have one. They were far too expensive. And so we didn't really have a way to get help. And like I said, there weren't very many cars going by. The very first car that came upon the scene had a a brick, had a cell phone. So when you say a miracle or two, there were several, right? Mm. Little tender mercies along the way, and they are all miracles. And um, so they called for help. Help arrived in about 15 to 20 minutes from both directions. Um, And make a long story short, they were able to, to get me out of the car. They stopped whatever traffic was coming to allow they had called for air med from the university of utah so they needed a place for it to land there on the paved highway and so they stopped all cars from coming either way and another miracle happened then in that as cole was waiting in in one of the emergency vehicles um, to know what he was going to be able to do because they told him he could not come in the helicopter with me they said they could drive him back as far as the town that we had been through and then 
he could call for someone to come get him and get him back to Salt Lake City, which was another uh, hour from that town. And so, so he was praying again for help. And as he looked up at the row of cars that they were stopping, he told the EMT he was with, he said, you need to go stop that car. It's her parents. (sighs) So they, because they had been at the wedding that day, were also traveling back and were later than us, apparently. They came upon the scene. My mom said she looked upon that and knew it was our car and said, go up there. That's, that's Abby and Cole. And that was all timed right then when they waved them forward. And I was in the back of the ambulance waiting for life or air med. And I don't remember much of that at all. But another miracle was that I was able to open my eyes for a brief moment when my father stepped into the ambulance and was able to administer a priesthood blessing to me on my head. And that was beautiful and heart-wrenching. And then they took me away in the helicopter. And then, of course, then that miracle was that Cole was then able to hop in with my parents. They turned around and drove back to Salt Lake, stopping long enough to make a payphone call. <laughs> this really dates it, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Payphone, telephone call to his parents who live here where we live now in, in northern Utah, just 20 minutes north of Salt Lake City, and told them what had happened. And they were able to then get to the hospital at about the same time as the the hel- helicopter. Wow. So. I, I did remember a couple of things in the helicopter, but, and then after that, I do not remember the emergency room at all. Um, they were able to get me stabilized, um, intubated. I actually did breathe on my own on the helicopter, but I was struggling enough that they had intubated me, took me to a ventilator. And so when I woke up, I was in neurocritical care several hours later. I don't really know the exact timing. And at which point they told me, and, and while I was, was unconscious for all of this, um, and I never, I, I was never in a coma or anything like that. Just, um, you know, they medically sedated me to be able to work on me and help me. Um, I had already told Cole and my parents and his parents that I had broken my neck spinal cord injury at the level of C3-4. And that's wow. very high. That's right there up, even with your jawline and controls everything from the neck down, including your breathing. And that's why they were very, actually quite surprised that I had breathed on my own till I got there. Um, and so of course this is then the prognosis they tell me when I was able to wake up enough from being medically sedated and there was no hope. Speaking of hope, they mm-hmm. gave it to me. Um, they said I would never walk. I would never breathe on my own. I would be ventilator dependent. I would, if I made it out of the hospital, would be probably moved to a full-time, full-care facility. Wow. Um, and that I would probably eventually die due to complications of this severe of an injury. My body would shut down. And they gave me literally like three to five years. Um, oh my gosh. 
don't plan on getting married. Don't it's, you know, I mean, basically they said the end Hmm. terminal. I mean, you know, just no hope. Um, How did you feel at that point? I mean, oh my gosh. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I was drugged. So there was that, right. It kind of takes the edge off, but of course in my mind, I'm going, well, because I couldn't talk. I had a tube in my mouth. And so they told me to answer questions once for yes, blink once for yes, two for no. Oh, geez. And then if I really needed to say something, they would hold up a board with the alphabet on it and they would point one letter at a time. And I would blink once for yes and two for no until I spoke. Wow. Right? Oh, frustration. So I really couldn't express how I felt about it all. Uh, But inside, of course, it was devastating. And yet, in that very moment, I felt complete peace. Hmm. I immediately felt peace. And most people, is, you know, would say, oh, you're just in denial. Because I was like, no, I'm fine. I'll be fine. I'll walk again. No problem. It's all fine. And that's really my personality, too. I'm very optimistic. I'm very positive, which... It was, it gave me the upper hand already, <laughs> um, you know, but, and part of that came from my faith, not just being a positive person, but faith filled, right. Um, seeing witnessed what I had witnessed and, and knew. So my faith was strong. I knew I'd be okay. It was still scary. It was like, wow, whoa, what? This is not in my plan. We're mm-hmm. getting married in a week. What? This was not supposed to happen. Right. And then also that thought came, this is the thing Mm. that was supposed to happen Mm. before you got married. Wow. And it was a testimony to me that, you know, and I, I realize people have different beliefs about this, but my belief is that we lived as spirits before we were born. And I believe that I knew and was given that we all are given and know what we are going to go through in this life. Hmm. And so I felt like that was just that little preparation I had to, to not be shaken, Mm. to know that I was warned about this. Wow. Oh my gosh. Abby, this is so, It's so incredible that you had that feeling that you're able to feel peace in the moment of despair when they're like, give up now. (laughs) Surrender to this difficulty. You're like, heck no. (laughs) Because what they also didn't know about me is I'm very, very stubborn. (laughs) Don't tell me what to do. Ask my mom how how many gray hairs I gave her because... I do not like being told what to do. So, you know, and my mom told him she has a very stubborn, determined will. And you go ahead and tell her she won't. And that'll just, that'll just push her to do it. So. Your mom knew you well, didn't she? (laughs) She's like, tell her she won't walk. Now you go drag her out into the middle of a desert and she'll walk back just because you told her she couldn't. (laughs) So, so I had that too, you know. Mm-hmm. I was positive and I had faith, but I was also very stubborn. Mm. And so, so in my mind, when they said, I won't, I said, oh, yes, I will. 
You watch. Wow. So what did that look like then over the next few months? So I was in the hospital for a total of three months, which was a lot shorter than should have been with an injury of my severity. Mm -hmm. Um, And in those three months, uh, critical care for two weeks, had to, they they did surgery, uh, fused my neck together, three and four were basically three slipped off a cord, um, which then completely impinged the spinal cord, right? So that's where that damage came from. Then when they did um, one of my surgeries, they went, the first surgery, they went ahead and did the trach for my Mm -hmm. ventilator in my neck, that's the tracheotomy, Mm -hmm. where they put it directly in your neck so that it wasn't in my mouth, so I could at least communicate. Um, Because they said, you know, it's long-term. Now, had it, had they thought it would be just a couple of weeks, they may not have done that because that's kind of a invasive surgery, you know, to put a, cut a hole in your neck. Um, but because they said it would be my, the rest of my life, they went ahead and did that trach. And so, you know, so then I'm put in rehab after a couple of weeks of getting better enough that I was no longer critical. And, um, you know, which, and it was good at at that point to get the trait because like I said I could now communicate now when I say communicate you still cannot make sounds because air is not passing through your vocal cords when you oh, have a trait. Oh that's right. And so it's mouthing words. Still a bit frustrating. Better than blinking. Let's <laughs> yes. Positive <laughs> on this way better than blinking. Um just frustrating when people can't really read lips. So but I did have my interpreters, my Cole, my fiance, now husband, and my mom always could, you know, interpret if the nurses were having a hard time seeing what, you know, I think personality wise, you can maybe tell what someone's, if you know them. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And so, yeah, so I, I, I could do that. And, and that, at that point, when doctors started coming in, now this is University of Utah. It's a learning hospital. It's a teaching hospital for, you know, people go there for medical school. It's one of Mm -hmm. the medical schools in the country. Um, so I had like all these hordes of doctors coming in. <laughs> um, I was a, I was a case study, I guess, you know? Yeah. And, um, um, so, but I made sure I told them, even though the sound didn't come out, I will walk every time hmm. I mouth those words. And I made sure they saw me. I made sure they were looking me in the eye and I said, I will walk. Mm. And a lot of, you know, I got lots of eye rolls and mm-hmm. shrugged shoulders and sympathetic, like, oh, poor her. She just doesn't get it kind of looks, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and both, both, I had two neurosurgeons and they both said, Mm-mm. you know, one gave us zero hope. And the other one said, this is it, but there's this much room for a miracle. So wow. that's where my hope was was in the mm. mirror. If mm. they said physically and scientifically, no, I'm like, well, I've already seen miracles. So let's just go there. Yeah. 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 So that was, you know, so I had to, I basically started from scratch. So for three months I was, you know, waiting and they said, if we can't make something move, but if something progresses, if something happens, we work on that, you know, we'll strengthen mm-hmm. it. Um, and trying to get me to breathe on my, you know, wean off the ventilator and um, 
you know, be able to sit up without passing out. Because when you lay down for, for a long time, your blood pressure, you know, all of that. Um, so yeah, months of physical therapy and, um, but in within the first month, mm-hmm. in fact, still in critical care is when I got my first idea that I could feel a little bit. Now they had, really? done, they had done a lot of tests on my feeling. You know, they do like sharp dull tests and test different points of your body, your legs, your arms, you know, to see, can you feel this? Can you feel that? And they're testing levels of, of paralysis. Um, and I really, really couldn't, you know, sometimes I felt like I felt maybe a little pressure, but couldn't tell if it was sharp or dull, things like that. And yet one day um, they had just cleaned my trach. You know, they have to keep that sterilized, not get infection. And they just use a little sterile water and stuff and clean it up, dry it off. Well, one day they maybe just didn't dry it off as well as they thought. And, and of course I can't see it, you know, mm-hmm. it's down in my neck, but I, all of a sudden I felt this trickle down my chest below the level of where I was able to feel. I could only feel, I could shrug my shoulders barely that mm-hmm. right at first. Okay. That's all I had was a teeny tiny shrug and the top of my left shoulder felt normal. And the rest from there down was completely numb. Wow. And so I could not feel there. Right. Well, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I feel this little trickling going down my chest, like my sternum. And I say to my mom, there's something on my chest. So she looks and there's the water that they hadn't dried off, you know, it had a, mm-hmm. a drip that had started running down. And she's like, wait, you're not supposed to feel that. So she runs out, you know, tells the nurses she can feel this. And, and, and it wasn't even a matter of, you know, they're like, did you ask her, you know, power of suggestion, like, mm-hmm. yeah, you've got something running down. Can you feel that? No, mm. I told her. Mm-hmm. And so they were all very amazed again. And they told the doctors and they were like, mm. <laughs> skeptical, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's hard. And so, you know, again, they start doing sharp, dull tests and I was feeling some and little tiny bits here and there. So, you know, it started progressing, right? It started coming back. um, And then I got to a point, um, well, where I got, I got out of critical care and um, I, I had received a number of priesthood blessings. Okay. So um, prayers said by men in our church who hold the priesthood, one of which was my fiance, my dad, um, you know, and so I'd received these blessings. I also, and this is a long story, but was fortunate enough to receive one from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, who was one of the 12 apostles in our church. Wow. So that was incredible. And that indeed was part of the miracle. Um, after that, I started getting feeling back. And it was painful. Um, like when you sleep on your hand or your foot and it's a little numb, falls asleep, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get those kind of pins and needles tingly when the circulation starts to come back. That's what I felt all over my body, but times a hundred, like it was more dabbing pain than just prickly pain. And so that's nerve pain, which isn't touched by medication. 
Oh. So the only thing that helped, now I, I, I find this fascinating. You know, we as humans, we need connection. We need people, mm-hmm. not just medicine. Medicine is not a fix-all. Mm-hmm. We need people. And I, I will tell you over and over again that it was not, yes, I am grateful for modern medicine. I'm grateful for what they could do. I'm grateful for the surgeries. I'm grateful for all of that. But had I not had love and support and people, I don't think I would have survived. Hmm. Maybe they would have fixed my neck, but I don't think I would have survived because we need people. And it was Mm -hmm. those people that I needed when that pain was stabbing me all over that I needed literally a person on each limb and they would rub and rub and rub. And that would just kind of take the edge off of those stabbing pains. Wow. Now, how long did that last, Abby? As you know, I, 24 years is a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That it it feels, I, I feel like it was just, I had maybe two or three days of that um, until that was at least subsided enough that I could cope. So, you know, just, there's just so many things that happened in those three months, but that, you know, that kind of started that process of the, of the healing and my body coming back. What an incredible story. This is just, it really is a miracle. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to have Abby tell us a little bit more about learning to walk and the lessons learned through all the ups and downs of this challenging situation. How many of you out there feel like your life is chaotic, crazy, and completely awful compared to the norm? What if I were to tell you that you are normal for you? I am so excited to announce that my book, Normal For Me by Tamara K. Anderson is now available for purchase on Amazon. This book took me 10 years to write and I share 20 years worth of lessons learned in my life detours, including being in a car accident and having two of my children diagnosed on the autism spectrum. In this book, I share the secrets of how I made it from despair to peace with God's help. I also include a bonus diagnosis survival guide at the very end of my Normal For Me book. The diagnosis survival guide includes 12 tips to survive and thrive in tough times. Wouldn't you like to know what those are? So what are you waiting for? Grab your copy of Normal For Me today on Amazon. And we're back. I've been talking to Abby Stevens about the car accident that changed her life and left her paralyzed, but she was able to gain a lot of feeling and movement back. So Abby, let's, let's talk about that movement and some of the lessons learned. You know, of course, then there's movement, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can feel if I could feel and now, and it was also one of those moments that my lessons that I've learned from this and, and throughout my life, gratitude is huge. If you're going to overcome tragedy and trauma and hard times, you must, must, must be able to find gratitude and live in a space of gratitude because that's one of the first things I felt like when you asked when I first woke up and my first, one of my first thoughts was how grateful I was that I had people, my family was there and that I was alive. 
Mm. I may have been completely paralyzed, but I was grateful to still be alive. So, you know, you take the the hard part and then you've got to look at the good part, Mm. right? Because if we dwell only in the sad and horrible and hard, that's all we will ever feel, feel. And who wants to do that? Yeah. You can't survive that. We're not meant to survive in ugh mode all the time. No. Right? And sadness and sorrow and pain. So we have to find the gratitude to balance that out. And so, again, when I was feeling the pain of these stabbing pains, it was painful. And yet in my brain, I'm like, oh, but I can feel like hooray. <laughs> I'm grateful to feel because they said I never would. Right? Mm-hmm. So it was all these moments as things continued. There were the hard times and the times I was crying. And, you know, people are like, how are you happy through all of that? I'm like, I wasn't. <laughs> right? I'm, I tell and I teach people and I talk to people about how to be happy through adversity and find joy through adversity and, and trials and how to choose to be happy because, you know, there are daily ups and downs and there are, you know, big ones and little ones and everything in between. And so in every one of those moments, we have to find a way to choose the good part, right? Or we'll be overwhelmed by the bad and the negative. And so, you know, that's what, that's, it was just a roller coaster ride of days of just sobbing. And why, why now? Like, you know, we all question why. And, and then it became, you know, he's not going to, it's not a matter of why it's like, what, what am I supposed to learn from this? And what am I going to do with it? Oh, I love that. You know, I, 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 we did make a choice, not a conscious one that day to not put on our seatbelts. It was a mistake and we all Mm -hmm. make those, but it was still a choice, right? Nobody made us not do it. And so there's a consequence to that choice. And that's, if you're in an accident, you could get very hurt. And I was very hurt um, or die. Right. Um, And so then from that choice though, now I had a choice as how I was going to react to it, what I was going to do with it. And so I chose to be grateful and I chose to, look at the positive and I chose to keep my faith strong. Right. So those mm-hmm. were all the choices. And so instead all- of asking why, ask what, mm-hmm. what can I learn and make the choice to be grateful? I love those. Yes. And, and, you know, and I, I was, I was, uh, I, I just spoke to a group a couple of weeks ago and the topic was gratitude. And I, so I looked up a few things and, and I found um, several talks, but one that talked about living, not just, not just like listing the things you're grateful for, mm-hmm. but living in a space of gratitude. What do you think is the key to living in that space versus just listing? I think it takes practice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of times all we can do is find a list, right? Like, mm-hmm okay, I have all of this list of negative, I'm going to list good. And so we consciously go, okay, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for, and you start listing the things, the sunshine, the whatever, right? And as we practice that, I, I feel that over all these years, because I, I'm not sure that I was in, a, in, in that feeling or space of gratitude then, it was more like daily going, okay, I'm going to get through this, but I got to find something to be grateful for, right? And to overcome this. So I did the list of things. Mm. And as you do the list of things, it creates the feeling. 
Mm. Right? So so it's a process. Do. Yes, it's a process and we can all do it. And some takes more time than others. Um, and some might naturally just be that person that lives in gratitude all the time. Um, and I think being a positive person, it maybe was easier for me to get there. Mm-hmm. And having the faith and being grateful to my God for, you know, my life, my blessings, this miracle, these miracles that were happening and that I expected to happen. Um, and so, so, you know, t- it took time, but I feel that there is, uh, there are just moments when I'm incredibly sad or struggling. And yet the overarching feeling that I go back to is, and it's perspective. It's a matter of perspective, right? We were talking about that, like mm-hmm. not switching something to funny, but having a, a different perspective. So looking at it in more a grateful lens, a grateful view mm-hmm. and going, okay. Like right now, let's take, for instance, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> let's do this. Let's break down 2020. Like who is not in a full on like stress, everything, like an overwhelming everything and not just COVID and not, you know, not just the pandemic, not just the election, not just, you know, these things, but still everybody is still dealing with other illnesses, other people dying. It is, has been insane. I've felt this overwhelming, just heaviness. And my family, we're doing great. I mean, you know, we're all thriving. Um, No one's been horribly ill. You know, my kids are still okay. They're going to school. We're, We're doing the things. I mean, we're still doing 2020 things. My girl's high school is in a soft closure for two weeks. My husband just tore his ACL several weeks ago and we're waiting to have surgery but in those like at those moments that you're like that's frustrating I go to the feeling and perspective of gratitude because then I say but wait I'm so grateful for feeling we're okay right it's just a feeling like not even listing but we're okay and we have to get back to that perspective it could be so much worse Mm. You know, look at the people that are grieving the loss of loved ones. We're okay. You know, and so in their perspective, maybe they're like, this is horrible. I'm grieving a lost loved one. But even they can look outside of their grief and say it could be worse. Yeah. So it is that perspective and finding the blessings amidst the hardship, right? Yeah. Right. Like this is horrible, but this is great. Uh This is painful, but look at this, right? All right. So you do have to tell us. How in the world you are a walking quadriplegic? Right. <laughs> Seriously, girl. I'm like, I'm still blown away. Like, I can't wrap my brain around that thought. But do tell me how that miracle happened. Basically, after I started getting feeling, and then um, I eventually was able to wean off the ventilator, which was about six weeks, about halfway. And that was another miracle. Um, I had a, I mean, it's just so coincidental. My cousin was head of respiratory at the hospital. Oh my gosh. I mean, you know, yeah. So he, you know, of course all the other respiratory therapists would come in on their shifts, but he being connected to me would come in um, more probably to me than his other patients, but just to visit. And then when he did that, see, it, it was like this huge mind game to be able to get off the ventilator because breathing 
is essential. Oh, yeah. <laughs> something a little more scary about coming off a machine keeping you alive than maybe taking, you know what I'm saying? This is like huge. And so, um, you know, I kind of this mind battle of can I do it? Can I? And so they turn the knobs and things and turn down the oxygen and turn down the this and that to see if I could breathe on my own, right? And so he would come in and, you know, and, and the other therapist would tell me, no, I'm turning this down. Now you're going to breathe on your own. And you tell me when, you know, when they see how long I could go or whatever. And I was weaning off and getting better and getting stronger. Well, he'd come in and he, you know, just mess with the knobs like everybody else. And I didn't even question what he was doing. And then he'd just sit and talk to me. And one day, about 10, 15 minutes later, he's like, by the way, you have been breathing completely on your own. <sighs> So he didn't even tell you. He just no, he just sat and chatted with you. <laughs> so, you know, so there was that. So I did get off the ventilator. And I mean, that was it was still scary, right? Um, my lungs were extremely strong. I had to do lots of work with that. Um, tubes, all kinds of tubes. I had a feeding tube we had to get rid of. I had a a, a pick line for, you know, giving me medicines and stuff. And it it, it got infected and we had to take it out. And I mean, you know what I'm saying? There was all the ups and downs of any other hospital stay and horrible injury like this. Um, but there was also, there was always progress. And that was kind of one of our things, quote things that my mm-hmm. fiance, I, um, Cole, he came to the hospital every single day, by the way, wow. that's commitment. And um, so he would come and at the end of the day, we would pray always. And then he would say, show me something new tomorrow. Mm. And, you know, progress is progress. And it doesn't matter how big or small, whether it was getting one teeny tiny tube out or, you know, breathing longer on my own or whatever that looked like, whether it was huge or small, we counted again, gratitude, counted those blessings, looked at the progress, looked at the positive. And, um, we just made sure there was something literally every day. And if it was hard to find, we still found, we would just search like something <laughs> positive happened today and we'd find it. Right. And so we continued that, that process. And um, like I said, you know, the rubbing to get the, the stabbing pains out was, it, it felt good to get a foot massage. Right. Oh. Who doesn't love a good foot massage? Like, Oh yeah. Awesome. But when you've got tingly feet, it feels even better. <laughs> and, and so he we would have date night every night in the hospital when <laughs> um or you know everybody would leave and and our nurses were kind and they would let him stay after visiting hours and um you know we just kind of had this special different situation right than most mm-hmm. and um so they just were really kind to let us do that and and he would sit and massage my feet and um, felt good. And we, we were watching TV. It was the summer of the Atlanta, Georgia Olympics mm-hmm. Olympics, and we'd watch those and we watch him TV one night and he's rubbing my feet. And all of a sudden he says, Abby, did you do that? I said, do what? Cause you know, like I didn't do anything. <laughs> I, don't do, I don't do anything. I'm just laying here. Um, and he said, your foot moved. Did you move your foot? Now, there is a reflex in the bottom of your foot that we had, they had shown us because they do it as a part of the testing, that if you rub something up the bottom of your foot, like up the bottom of a baby's foot, it's called the Babinski reflex, uh-huh. and it makes your foot just kind of 
flare. It's like a reflex. Uh-huh. And so he had done that a number of times because it was funny, right? To make my foot move. But so I'm like, did you do the reflex thingy? You know, uh-huh. he's like, no, I didn't do it this time. So he's like, your foot move, try to move your foot. So I'm looking down at the bottom of my bed and I'm trying and trying and trying and trying, you know, like, no, it shouldn't take that much effort, but it did. And I'm like, God, I'm trying to send this signal. And in a few seconds, my big toe moved. <gasps> and we were like, oh, <laughs> oh my God. you know, it was one of those moments like, what did we say? Like when it, it was almost like just speechless, right? Like, just like uh-huh. ah! and, then, and then I moved my whole left foot at the ankle. What? And then, and we were so excited and like, didn't even really even know what to do. And he's like, maybe I should go tell the nurses. And I'm like, yeah, probably. So he's running out to tell him. And I'm like, wait, before you go, wait. And I moved my whole left leg at the hip. <gasps> oh my gosh. So it was that fast. And sometimes I still think, wait, did I try before? Why, why didn't I try sooner? <laughs> I think I did, just not, it wasn't that big. Like he didn't say try, right? So there every day I'm laying there going, gosh, I wish I could move and just couldn't, you mm-hmm. know, and I'd send the signals and nothing would happen. And so, yeah, at that moment, it just went right up my left side. Wow. And I was my leg and I was dancing again, you know, because I was a dancer before. And I'm <laughs> dancing in my bed and I'm doing more moves than he can ever do. And anyway, he tells the nurses, they, we call our families, you know, just the word spread. And it was, that was just kind of the start of that. And so long story short, movement kept coming back. It went up my left side. I could move my fingers before I could move my muscles, which is totally backwards. They, I confused everyone. The doctors were like, she is not textbook. And my mom's (laughs) like, remember, she does things her way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, my left side, and I tried my right that day and I could barely, barely get a teeny little movement on my toe, my big toe. And so it took longer. And so, you know, over those next several weeks, I was able to get a little more movement out of the right, um, not much out of the right arm. And so eventually though, I got my body to where we were doing more physical therapy and we were strengthening the muscles that were coming back and we were doing this hard work every day. And I was, you know, they're teaching me how to, just in case I don't walk, which they assumed I wasn't. So there were classes on how to be independent in a wheelchair and transfer and do all of those things, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And become a quadriplegic mm. um, in a chair. And so anyway, time, lots of time, lots of weeks. But eventually a week before I got out of the hospital, I was standing in the parallel bars doing physical therapy and we're strengthening my left leg because it was it was basically normal movement and taking steps and strengthening those muscles. And I said to my physical therapist, Anne, I said, you know, I have a week till I'm supposed to get out of the hospital mm. and I have told everyone I would walk and I, that I would walk out of this hospital. So we've got to work on my right side a little more. She's like, okay, let's do it. And so we were trying, but standing still, I just could not get that right leg to cooperate. And she said, hold on, I have an idea. And she went out and um, now there is a video of this by the way. And so we'll, I'll give you some links. That'd be so cool. Yeah. And we 
and now remember, this is 96 when we weren't, didn't have our digital cameras on our phones. We didn't yep. have social media. We didn't have blogs. We didn't have the constant <laughs> update and videoing every literal thing I did every single day. Mm-hmm. So we seriously, I have very few pictures and I have just this couple of videos that they use the hospital camera that was like a dinosaur ginormous video. That's what we had back then. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, they ran and got a camera. They took me out into the hall and got this cool walker with these armrest things that I could hold on to. And my therapist sat on a, a stool with wheels in front of me. And we started walking down the hall. Wow. They stood me up. My Cole was there, got me up out of the wheelchair, stood me up on this walker, and I started taking these steps. Left left foot, great. Right foot, struggle. It wanted to cross over. It wanted to drag behind. And she'd help my foot. And then left foot, great. Right foot, struggle. And we walked about 50 feet down the hallway. I would have been te- in tears. <laughs> it, was, well, it was so stressful and so hard, such hard work. It literally felt like running a marathon. And Cole stayed behind me with the wheelchair just in case, just in case I got weak and needed it. He came up behind me. She had me stop, stabilize myself, stand up, let go of the walker and stand <gasps> on my own. And then I got a little wobbly. And they sat me down and they watched this video and you can see the relief in my face as I just go. Hmm. And I did it. Wow. Not just me. Mm. So you remember the people? Mm-hmm. Remember the faith? Remember the hope? I cannot say, look what I did. That would be completely hypocritical. And I would be afraid of being struck down. (laughs) There was literally faith and angels in every footstep. Mm. And both seen and unseen. Because my physical angels were there. Mm -hmm. And my unseen angels giving me strength. And I know that. And I can't deny it. But I walked. Wow. And the week later, there's more video of that. I walked from the doors of the hospital to the car. Wow. Still with the walker. Yet one week later, I was so much stronger. I didn't need nearly as much help from my therapist. My right foot was doing a lot better. And we walked out and I got in my car and we went home. Oh, my word. And that's a miracle. There is is more than explanation. And of course, it took several months of physical therapy. Um, You know, I still was in that wheelchair. They asked me when I wanted to, early on, my mom asked me when I wanted to reset the wedding date. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And, you know, Miss Optimist and Positive Pants here. (laughs) You know, this is, I'm in the hospital in June and I say, how about August? (gasps) You know, of course, they weren't going to put me down, right? Okay, let's shoot for August. August came and went. Okay, now what do you think? Um, September. <laughs> uh, and I got out Friday the 13th, September 13th, Friday the 13th. That's when I got out of the hospital. And they said, okay, now when? And I said, how about November? Okay, let's work for it, you know? And I just wasn't 
I wasn't physically strong enough because my goal was to walk and not need the wheelchair to be married. Mm. So we gave it several months of hard physical therapy and we were married the following May 22nd of 1997, 11 months and one day from the accident. And I walked. Yay. And I walked and I still walk. And now 24 years later, I'm getting older. And so our bodies get more tired. And so I need to do more exercise and stay strong. But I have noticed, you know, a little more weakness in my legs, but I still walk. I do need help. Sometimes I use a cane when I'm in public by myself. Mm -hmm. When I have my people, they just hold on to me. Sometimes if we're going too far, I do still use my wheelchair. For, I call it my speed and agility chair because I'm not fast. And <laughs> Your not speed and agility. Yeah, I love that. So that's, you know, to get somewhere fast and without wearing me out, then we use the wheelchair. And um, But here we are and, you know, four, four kids, twins, and a beautiful life later, 24 years. And, and it was all because of faith and hope. Mm. And we cannot let go of hope because what is the definition of hope? it's something forward. It's not right. It's not in the moment we're experiencing. It's hope is looking forward. Yes. I hope this happens. I have hope for better days. I have hope that the pandemic will end soon. I have Yay, hope. me too. Right? <laughs> I have hope that I have hope for my children's future. I have mm. hope that they will all be able to get married and have children. Now it is a little scary. I'm like, well, oh, maybe do I want them to have children in this crazy world? But mm -hmm. I know that we still have quite a few years, you know, and mm -hmm. you and I were talking earlier and I kind of wish Jesus would come tomorrow, but here's you know, hoping, <laughs> but I know we have several years and I just, I really do have to look at it. We have to look at it through the perspective of hope and gratitude and humor and laugh when we fall, and though there's so many stories of me falling and putting head or dents in the wall with my head. Oh, God. And I fell once in my garage and got a great big goose egg on my head and it drained down and I had this massive black eye. And, and then I fell up against a toilet once and broke the tank and flooded the floor. <gasps> and I, I mean, you think, I mean, say 24 years of stories is far more than I can tell in. <laughs> but those are the times that literally we just have to laugh because, mm. you know, we make sure nobody's hurt and we're okay, but then we go, oh my gosh. My point is, I have the opportunity to share this with a lot of people. And the comment I get most afterwards is that it gives them hope. It gives them perspective that their life isn't that bad. Or even if it is worse, they still say, you know, let's go back to that survivor's guilt thing. I have a hard time talking to people who are still in a wheelchair who had the same prognosis as I did. Hmm. I feel guilty that I'm walking and they're not. And yet the couple that I've talked to about it, they're like, no, 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 no. That's your journey. This is our journey. Right. And maybe there are those that are bitter and went for that other place, you know, being bitter and, and hateful and denying God in their tragedy. And I feel sad about that, but I, I received a miracle. I don't know why, like you said, why do some receive miracles and some don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. Our job is to have faith that it's God's will 
and trusting that whatever God's will is, that we're going to learn from it in our personal journey. And what does it teach others? Mm. Because we're not in it. Like I said, it's people. We're not in this by ourselves. It involves all the people. And so sharing this with people and giving them hope and helping them gain perspective and helping them find humor and helping them learn gratitude and how to choose joy and happiness and overcoming. And again, that doesn't mean you can't cry because I have my days. Oh, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. We all have the days, right? You know, where we just have those meltdown and cry and that's okay. And then we pick ourselves back up and move forward. That's a choice. Oh, that's beautiful. So let me ask you, has there been a Bible verse that has become particularly meaningful to you through all of this? Yes. And I have several in the Bible. My favorite is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And that is, I hope, I hope, there's my Lord, that through me telling this, you've heard that underlying message that faith, 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 and again, faith in Christ has, is what gives me that hope, is where I find that hope, is where I find the strength. It's where I find the ability to choose joy over the trial and the heartache and the pain. Oh, that's beautiful. That's actually my favorite one. <laughs> it, it's, it's one of those verses that really does instill the hope that no matter what, I can do all, all things. Right. Not in my own strength, because there are days when you know you can't, you don't have the strength to do what's required of you, but God does, right? Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Oh my goodness. Well, Abby, there's going to be people who want to connect with you after listening to just this one little piece of your amazing story. Where can they find you? All over the place. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, well, these days, social media, everybody can be found. I am on Facebook and Instagram, Instagram at Ab Speaks and just Abby Stevens on, on Facebook, Abby Stevens Motivational Speaker. And uh, I have a website, abbystevens.net. And Stevens is with a PH. And I'm sure you're going to post these links, right? I will. Um, and I do have a YouTube channel where you can find those videos. I have a couple of videos of me speaking um, and little little things like that. So very um, excited to hear from people. Um, and Thank you. Would love, to, would love to come share with any groups. So And... You can hear me sing on Instagram and Facebook um, through the pandemic. One of my things I chose to do to share hope and goodness was to just sing a Sunday song every for a while every Sunday, and then it became sporadic. But I have several of those all on there, um, songs of faith and hope and um, uplifting messages. And um, so, yeah, I can hear me sing there. And I also do sing when I... Um, come and visit and speak to groups. So. Oh, that's incredible. Thank you, Abby, for taking us through the ups and the downs of your life mm -hmm. and for sharing such an incredible message of hope. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. I know that there are many of you out there that are going through a hard time, and I hope you found things that have been useful today as you listen to the podcast. 
If you would like to access the show notes from today's podcast, visit my website. It is storiesofhopepodcast.com. That is where you'll find favorite quotes from today's episode and shareable memes. And those are fun because you can share them with your friends on social media. You will also find the links mentioned throughout today's episode so you don't have to remember what those were. And also all the tips that were shared. Sometimes tips are shared so much throughout an episode you forget. What were those great things? So go to the show notes, storiesofhopepodcast.com to look up these fantastic resources. You know, if someone kept coming to mind during today's episode, perhaps that means that you should share this with them. Maybe there was a story shared or a tip that they really, really need to hear. So go ahead and share this episode with them. May God bless you, especially if you are struggling with hope to carry on and with the strength to keep going when things get tough. Remember to walk with Christ and he will help bear that burden. Above all else, remember God loves you.